All right. Well, good morning. Hope you guys are doing well. Uh, I know that, you know, for a lot of us, yesterday was, a, you know, Florida fans can't be too excited about interesting game. Florida State fans, I'm sorry. And um, I think I might be the only Georgia fan in the room. Uh, but pray for me, for I am depressed. No, um, <laughs> if you don't know what I'm talking about, just watch ESPN later. It'll be there. Uh, we are continuing on in our series, uh, Fix Your Eyes Upon Jesus. We're walking through Hebrews, and today we have Hebrews 4, 1 through 13. Uh, you can find it in your bulletin. I'll read it, and then we'll pray. So Hebrews 4, 1 through 13. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them, because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said, so I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words, on the seventh day, God rested from all his works. And again, in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not Harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is alive and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all of creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Pray with me. Father God, help us to believe as your word is preached today, uh, the message that it contains, God, the the message of your son. Let us see your son today uh, as the word uh, is living and active and as it uh, penetrates our hearts, um, let it do so in bringing us Jesus. In your name I pray, amen. Uh, well, this passage is obviously uh, about rest. Uh, it kind of shows up a lot. And if there's one person that is completely unqualified to talk about rest, it's me. Um, and, uh, but as I th- thought about rest, uh, often, you know, f- for me, what I thought about was um, my, my honeymoon. Uh, we went to an all-inclusive Cancun resort. Uh, and, you know, part of it, looking back on it, I was like, man, that was, it was just the best. There was nothing to do. You just sat there and it was all inclusive. It was amazing. Um, but there's a part of me that me and my wife have always kind of said like, oh, someday we're going to go back. Someday we're going to go back. And of course we never do because life gets busy and things happen. Uh, and, uh, actually our culture is amazingly bad 
at resting, uh, like pathologically bad at it. Uh, in 2015, Americans set a record, uh, so you go America, um, but uh, this is not as good, uh, set a record for most unused vacation days. Americans in 2015 left 658 million vacation days unused. I did the math, and that's 1,802,000 years of vacation wasted in 2015. So whenever we talk about heaven being this like eternal bliss, just know that we wasted 2 million years of nothing. You know, 2 million years of paid time off gone in one year. It's actually pretty impressive. Uh, More than half, 55% of employees didn't use all their vacation. Again, this is time that your job says, we like you, we want you around, we pay you, but we don't want you in for these couple days. You know, just don't come in. We will pay you, you'll make the, you know, but just don't come in. And we're like, yeah, I think I'll come in anyways. You know, like you're not going to make more money. Yeah, that's okay. I I still would rather be at work. Um, So why are we so bad at taking vacations? Uh, In the same survey, respondents claimed that there are three major factors. Uh, One was uh, kind of um, one that we would understand. Uh, The idea of if I leave, then I just come back and there's a mountain of work for me to do. You know, the work does not stop just because I'm not there. And so a lot of people said, I can't, I cannot take a vacation because it would just mean more work later. But the other two were also pretty interesting. Uh, And these were all kind of evenly split. The second one was no one else can do the job. In other words, I'm too important. I'm too important to take a vacation. No one else can do what only I can do. And I think there's something fundamental about human beings where we need to be needed. We want to be in uh, some type of place where there's a problem that only we can fix. And we'll talk about that a little bit more later, but that's because it says something about us. And the third one was people said they couldn't afford a vacation, um, which... I think even as I first read that, I thought, well, that's not true. Like, anyone can afford staying at home. Like, a staycation is a vacation. You know, it's like, you just don't go into work on the days that the work tells you you don't have to come in. Uh, anyone can afford and afford it. And what they found when they kind of did some digging on that um, was that this really was just kind of a little excuse. It says, uh, the, the report says, it's commonly assumed that economic trends are driving the decline. It's commonly assumed that people don't have enough money to go on vacation because of the economy. But the study found no correlation to unemployment rates or consumer confidence. Rather, America's time off habits closely track technology innovation and adoption trends, suggesting that connectivity has intensified Americans' attachment to work and reduced their ability to break free from the office. So in other words, it's not that I can't take a vacation. I don't, I don't have enough money to take a vacation. It's because even when I go on vacation, work follows me there. I have phones. I have, you know, I have instant email. I have all these ways that I can constantly be connected. Uh, and so the idea of taking vacation is, is, is just not true. You can't do it. Uh, and then there's a New Yorker cartoon of a man and a woman on a beach uh, and his wife on a beach. And he's got his laptop out on the beach um, or his iPad or whatever, uh, and the bottom caption says, I'm not a workaholic, I just work to relax. Um, I thought that was pretty true to how most of us are. Um, and so therefore, everyone in today's world is certainly busy. You're busy, and I'm busy. We all find our days filling up with more and more things, more expectations, more work, 
and more stress. This busyness leads to an increase in anxiety and depression. Uh, I see this with students all the time. Students these days, uh, if you're a parent, you probably recognize this. Um, uh, but just in case you haven't been a parent for a while or you know, your kids are grown, just will let you know, being a student today is much different than it was uh, for many of us growing up. Students are so busy. They are constantly, if, if, if there's a moment in the day, um, that, that moment is being claimed by something. It's being claimed by homework. It's being claimed by uh, school, by sports, by a job. Um, but then, then supposed to, on top of all that, spend quality time with their family. And, you know, on top of all of the things that teenagers already deal with, with hormones and dating. And, you know, all of, the, all of these things are happening. And they're just busy. Um, and this has an effect on them. Uh, psychologist Robert Leahy says that the average uh, high school kid today, this is, an, this is amazing, the average high school student today has the same level of anxiety as the average psychiatric patient in the early 1950s. In other words, 60, what, what 60 years ago, the level of anxiety in a person where society would have said, look, it's our job at this point to get you out of whatever environment you're in because this is completely unhealthy. You know, this isn't just like we need to make some moderate changes. We need to kind of rip you out of here and, and protect you and rehabilitate you. That level of anxiety is what the average high school student feels today. A recent report shows that teenagers' stress levels are actually about two points higher than adults. You know, sometimes we as adults think back on high school as these golden years where every, you know, there's no cares in the world, there's no responsibility. Oh, you don't know what it's like to be your dad. I have to take care of the family. I have to do this, I have to do this. The truth is they actually do know what it's like to be you and they actually feel more stressed than you, uh, just so we're clear. Um, and, and we in student ministry kind of get a front row seat to it. Uh, we kind of see, I mean, everything is, is claimed. Everything, there's no like free time. And anytime they do take some time to themselves, it's because they're neglecting something else that they probably ought to be doing. And so where are they learning this from? Well, they're learning it from you. Um, and it can be easy to think that the problem is just work. It's just that we work too much. It's that we're too busy. But I think this idea of work or our, our culture's obsession with work and earning and busyness affects families and relationships and our personal lives as well. Uh, some of us uh, have exhausted our spouses um, based on a, a sense of, I've, I need more from you. Some of us, our marriages feel exhausted because we've been trying and working and working and working and working, and it just feels tiring. Some of us, our children have been exhausted because of the uh, level of expectations that we've put on them. Often religion even becomes about this. More to do, more Bible studies to join, more, um, you know, more quiet times to do, more devotionals to read, more times in church. I'm going to go to the first service and the second service, and, the, and I'm going to go to a night service at another church just to make sure that I got all my ducks in a row and I'm, I'm doing everything I can to try to get uh, to feel some rest. Uh, I saw a report recently that um, one of the main uh, reasons that they're finding um, that millennials are leaving the church, which people talk about all the time, um, that, that one of the things that they noticed was that millennials are saying, uh, we're just tired of church. Not like, you know, just tired, I'm tired of that, it's lame. I mean, literally, we're just tired 
I'm tired of the do more, do more, do more, 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 more things to do. Religion can often be one of the least uh, restful things in our culture. So that leads us to the question for today. How on earth, how in the world are we going to actually be able to find rest? How are you going to be able to find rest in a world that has gone crazy, in a world that is busy, in a world that is constantly in the cycle of earning more and more for themselves? So first, I want to look at uh, the idea um, that's kind of prevalent throughout this passage, that Joshua uh, failed to bring uh, the people of God rest. And this tells us something about what the nature of rest is. The first thing to notice about this passage uh, is that Joshua is Joshua and the declaration that a rest still remains for God's people. In verse 8 and 9, it says, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And this is important because it shows us something about rest. First of all, the passage tells us that the rest we're talking about is God's own rest, his Sabbath rest from the work of creation. It's the seventh day of creation when God rests from his work. Verses three through four say, and yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world for somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day, God rested from all his works. So what works are we talking about? Well, in Genesis 1, 1 through 3, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And, and verse 2, I think, is fascinating. And I, uh, I am a Bible nerd. I went to Christian school, Christian college, seminary, uh, because I don't know why, um, because I nerd out about it. And I could talk way too long on this, so I'm going to try to move really quick um, as an act of mercy. Uh, but it says, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face uh, of the face of the waters. So there's this idea in the second verse of the Bible where before God really gets going in the creation process, before God really gets going on um, saying, let there be light. And, you know, the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth day of creation, um, that, that there's a there's a sense of darkness and chaos. Uh, there's a sense of disorder. And there's a sense in which what he's, what he's looking at is completely inhospi- inhospitable uh, to life. That life cannot grow there. And what you have is the spirit of the Lord hovering over the waters. And that word for hover is very similar to the, a verb used for like a bird of prey, circling its prey. Which is an amazing picture of, of this chaos and this darkness in the world. And God circling it, ready to act. And what he does in creation is he takes what is formless and empty and dark and chaotic and he forms order and beauty and life out of it. He forms it into something that not only uh, life can, can grow, but that life could thrive there. He plants a garden. He does all these things to make this place beautiful and then he rests. And so there's an idea that God drives out the darkness and fills the earth and form, uh, forms it. And he sees the chaos and he gets involved. And then after defeating the darkness and emptiness, he rests. So rest comes after God's enemies are defeated. And this is kind of uh, shown up again in the story of Joshua. The very beginning of the book of Joshua, Joshua 1.13, there's a promise of rest. That God is leading his people towards rest. Remember the word uh, that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, the Lord your God is providing a place of rest and will give you this land. 
In Joshua 21, 44, at the very end of the book of Joshua, it says, and the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them for the Lord had given all their enemies into his hands. So you have this correlation between true rest coming once God has defeated uh, his enemies, his and our enemies. But the, the crazy thing about it and the thing that the author of Hebrews is trying to draw out is that Joshua didn't really provide true lasting rest, that there was still a rest that remained for the people of God. Calvin, John Calvin says about this, no, the land of Canaan was not otherwise so much valued except for this reason, because it was an image and a symbol of the spiritual inheritance. In other words, Joshua brought them into a land of external rest. He brought them into a land uh, where all the things on the outside were like God accomplished for them. But Joshua couldn't provide rest for their hearts. In fact, the whole Old Testament often deals with these external things, temples, sacrifices, priests, the land of Israel, etc. Not because these things are the goals in and of themselves, but because uh, they point to a spiritual present reality and a future physical one. This is constantly repeated throughout Hebrews that the external trappings of religion are merely types that point to spiritual or heavenly realities. I mean, think about if there was ever going to be a people that could really rest, if there's ever going to be a people that could really truly experience rest the way we often think of it, because we often think rest will come when I finally deal with all of these things outside of myself. Rest will come when I finally get that job or rest will come when I finally get that promotion or rest will come when I finally get into that college. Or rest will come when my wife finally understands what I've been trying to tell her. Or rest will come when my husband finally stops trying to tell me things. You know, rest will, rest will finally come when these things have finally worked themselves out. If there was ever going to be a people that would experience that, it would have had to be the Israelites. I mean, if, if you were trying to form that and, and, you know, God is having a conversation with Abraham and he's like, I'm going to, you know, let's do this whole people resting thing. And Abraham's like, okay, well, here's what we need. We need people. And God's like, got it, you know. Stars in the sky, you're going to have more people. All right, well, we need a place to live. We need a land. God's like, yeah, I'm going to give you a land. He's like, well, okay, we need like, you know, uh, peop- we need to inhabit the land and not have other people trying to fight us for the land. God's like, I will defeat all the people in the land. You've got it. You know, God gives them all of the things that we would think this is what a nation needs to be this truly restful, beautiful place. And what happens? It totally, uh, it never gets there. Because I think Israel is meant to show us that the real problem is not any of these things that we always think the, is the problem. The real problem is within us. The real problem is our hearts. What the Israelites found was that even as God defeated their enemies on the outside, that they still had sinful, disbelieving hearts. And that's constantly referred to in this passage and the passage before, that those who did not enter God's rest did so because of unbelief. So the point is, first, that God's rest will only come through the defeat of his enemies. And second, that our truest enemies or our deepest enemies are inside of us. To put it simply, this means that the real battle of your life is not your career advancement. It's not your religious participation. It's not the loyalty of your spouse. The real battle of your life will be fought over your heart. And the only way you will find rest is if it begins internally. 
Uh, Jesus would constantly say this when he, uh, in his ministry. In Matthew 15, he runs into the Pharisees on this idea. He says, hear and understand it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person. It's not the external thing that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes in the stomach and is expelled, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart? Jesus is clear, your problem and my problem are almost never these external things to, uh, to us. It's not your job, it's not your kids, and it's definitely not your spouse. Your problem is internal. And until you deal with it, uh, then you will never have any sort of lasting rest. We don't get physical, emotional, or relational rest because we have no spiritual rest. Some of us have noticed that we have a deep-rooted anxiety or emptiness that we are desperately trying to fill with everything possible. Uh, a New York Times columnist, Tim Kreider, who is a self-professed atheist, um, but he, he kind of understood that this is the way people work. He wrote an article a couple years ago um, about the busyness of people in America. And he said this, and I think this is really poignant. He says, if you live in America in the 21st century, you've probably had to listen to a lot of people tell you how busy they are. It's become the default response whenever you ask someone, anyone how they're doing. I'm busy, so busy, crazy busy. It's pretty obviously a boast disguised as a complaint. And the stock response is a kind of congratulation. That's a good problem to have or better than the opposite. And, and think about it. Think about it when you were the last at a party. Uh, and, you know, somebody asks, like, well, how you doing? You know, odds are for a lot of us, our first kind of token response is busy. I'm like really busy. Uh, because imagine what would it say if you didn't have, if you didn't say that. Imagine if, you know, somebody said, like, how are you doing? You're like, I don't really have anything going on. You know, like, it's this instant, like, oh, I'm not as good as you. Because, you know, there's, a, in parties, it's like a comparison of who's busiest. Because whoever's busiest is probably most important He goes on and he gets to this. He says, busyness serves as a kind of existential reassurance, a hedge against emptiness. Obviously, your life cannot possibly be silly or trivial or meaningless if you are so busy, completely booked, in demand every hour of the day. Again, think back to one of the main reasons that people said they don't go on vacations. Because I'm I'm too needed we, we, we need to be in a place where uh, because we have this innate um, emptiness, or this innate anxiety or this innate um, sense of, uh, you know, what, what is it all for? We have to keep ourselves busy because it says something about who we are. It's, a, it's, it's correlating what we do with what we're worth. Uh, I must be needed. I must be in control. I must be the one to make things happen. All of our busyness and all of our efforts are trying to bring peace to something within us, but they never work. Augustine once said, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Unless something changes in our hearts, then these external things will never be enough. And you and I will exhaust ourselves. So how do uh, we actually get um, rest? How do we fill this? The second point uh, is that rest comes through faith. This passage tells us something very different from the way our culture operates, which is if you earn more, you'll feel better about yourself. If you earn more, if you earn and earn and earn and achieve, then someday you will have a sense of, I'm okay. Um, 
But this passage tells us something very different. Those who earn this rest are simply those who have faith. Verse three says, we who have believed enter his rest. The main problem with the Israelite community at Meribah that Psalm 95 talks about, we talked about some last week, is that when the good news came to them, as this passage says, it wasn't received in faith. That's what united with faith means. Faith is opposed to works. It's not more effort. It's not more exhaustion. It's not more work. It's ceasing from work. It's literally a Sabbath. It's rest. Verse 10 says, for anyone who enters God's rest, again, by faith, also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Faith ushers us into the very rest of God, a rest that comes when there's no more work to be done. Uh, the Sabbath in the Old Testament was always mainly about faith. They lived in an agrarian society. There's, it's not like, um, you know, at Friday at three o'clock or Friday at five o'clock, they were like, there's no more to be done. You know, let's, let's, let's wrap it up for the week. Um, there was always more to be done when you're living uh, like sustenance farming in a farm. There's always more work to be done. And the whole idea of Sabbath for God, uh, telling his people to take a Sabbath is a weekly reminder that I, God, not me, uh, I am the one who provides for you. That, that you will never achieve everything that you feel like you need to achieve. You will never survive just because you are able to do enough. But I am the one who is looking out for you. And faith is simply a trust in who God is. But church is like that too. It's, it's, it's asking, and when we come here, we ask, who or what is your trust in that everything in your life will be okay? I don't mean that everything will work out exactly the way you want it to. What I mean is everything that needed to be done in your life for you uh, to be okay, everything that needed to be done in your life to be right with God. How often do we trust that God alone is the one who provides that? And what is the object of our faith? Well, quite simply, it's the work of Jesus. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30. Jesus says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In Hebrews 12, 2, which this whole series is, is kind of named about, uh, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured, endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It's simply having faith that everything important in our lives that needed to happen, everything that we needed to achieve has already been done. Because one day you and I will be faced with death. That is a guarantee. And on that day, nothing that we stress about today, exhaust ourselves over or worry about, will really matter. The only thing that will matter, we might even in those days feel like it matters, but the only thing that really will actually matter is what comes next. The only thing that will matter is if someone has got a hold on you, even in your death. And I'm convinced that all of this effort the thing that's, that's, that's up wrestling in our soul that we are trying to fill that Tim Crowder was talking about is this deep question of, am I, uh, am I loved? Am I loved? And we think we have to earn, uh, we have to become lovable in order for God to love us. And faith says just the opposite. It's simply trusting that God 
has loved us. That God has loved us in sending his son for us. So lastly, uh, rest. Uh, how do we actually experience rest? How do we actually experience some type of rest? Well, this passage kind of talks about it. Rest comes through faith from hearing the word of God. This word that cuts to our hearts. Verse uh, 12 and 13, for the word of God is alive and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Uh, I think we've all, I've always heard this scripture as mainly like a proof text for, uh, you know, the power and sufficiency of scripture. And it is that. Um, but I think it's really interesting that it's placed next to this passage about rest. Because the truth of the matter is that rest is not something that we uh, work up for ourselves. It's not even something that we do a lot of self-talk, like preach the gospel to yourself. It's not that that's bad, but it'll never quite uh, have the same power as hearing the message proclaimed to us. Uh, In Romans 10, 17, Paul says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Acts 2.37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? What was it that Peter had just been talking about? He had been talking about the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. It was the message that Jesus was crucified and raised by God. It was the gospel. This word, the word of the gospel, cuts to the heart. It exposes our hearts. It makes us vulnerable before God. It reminds us of what it is that we're actually trying to put our faith in and what it is that we've been called to put our faith in. In other words, uh, we can't just remind ourselves of the gospel. The Christian life is dependent on community. We need preachers, uh, not just professional preachers, but we need preachers like you, people that tell each other about Jesus. We also need to gather each week and hear proclaimed the word of God, which will provide for us rest. It will remind us of what Jesus has done. But this is why community groups at Orangewood are such a big deal and a vital part of who we are. Because we need to be in community weekly where people are being reminded, where people are reminding us of the truth of what Jesus has done. Not just through word, but also through deed. That, that people are loving each other as Christ loves us, a love that is not based on earning or putting you in some type of cycle of getting better and better and better for me to love you, but a love that's based on the finished work of Jesus. It's why our student ministry is completely uh, built around small groups, because we believe this. Preaching the word exposes our hearts and our unbelief, and preaching the message of Christ uh, brings us rest. Uh, so ultimately, this is the message that truly brings rest. It's the message of the cross. It's the message that exhausted people need to hear. It's the message that dying people need to hear. It's the message that sinners, like you and me, need to hear. Some of us may be wondering uh, if all of the busyness of life really is that big of a deal. Um, I, I kind of felt this even in the first service as I was talking about it. Like, do we really understand that all of these things external to us really have deep um, uh, they stem from a very deep un, uh, unbelief or a deep uh, anxiety about, about us and about God and about uh, are we loved by him. And I was struck by a couple of years ago, there's a TED talk. Um, and uh, this, this TED talk was given by a lifetime uh, paramedic, lifelong paramedic. 
And he talked about this idea um, where he, on, in his job dealing with people in highways uh, and traffic collisions, um, he's had to deal a lot with people dying. Um, he's had to deal a lot with people who are lucid, who are aware, but who there's nothing he can do for. And at the beginning of the talk, he says, I used to, I used to just lie to them. You know, they would say, am I dying? And he would say, no, I think, you know, just hold on, hold on. We'll, we'll make it. Even though he knew there's nothing I could do. And he said, at one point I just decided I'm going to start telling people the truth. And so he would start telling people, they would ask, am I, am I dying? And he would say, I'm sorry, there's nothing more we can do. And he describes the conversations that he's having with people. Again, these are people that we said earlier who are part of our culture, who run around all day, just like me and you, working and working and working, who have visions for their life of where they're going, visions for their life of who they're becoming in order that they could finally uh, arrive. And he said uh, in these conversations, there's three things that stuck out to him. There's three things, three of the most common, profound things that people expressed in their uh, dying moments. And I think, I just remember thinking when I saw it, there's nothing, um, there's nothing that rings truer than a person uh, speaking about their life as they are dying. He said people had uh, an innate need for remembrance. Remembrance. People would, you know, please tell my mother or tell my uh, wife, tell my mother, tell my kids that I love them. Um, or even a sense of, will you remember me? Will you in this moment right here remember me? People, we have an innate need for remembrance and everything we do uh, often doesn't show that, but it's down there. They needed to, have, uh, they needed to know that what they did mattered or, or they regretted not doing enough. And what he means by that is they needed a sense of meaning. They needed a sense of purpose. They would say things like, there was so much more I wanted to accomplish. And, and what message is there to proclaim to that? Sorry. But the most profound thing that he said was that people in their dying moments, people like me and you, who had no intentions that day of that happening, but found themselves confronted with the fact that everything was ending. He said said that they had a profound need for forgiveness. That that they asked, uh, that they expressed regret. They expressed, you know, what we would call sin. And they would express a need for forgiveness. And my question to you today is what message, what message provides rest for people who can no longer earn anything? What message provides rest for people that have no more control over their life? I think it's the message of the cross. Now, one of my favorite authors, Paul Zoll, he wrote a book called uh, PZ's, Paul Zoll's Panopticon. And it's a guide to world religion in this really cool way where he basically looks at all religions And he looks at them through the lens of what does this have to say to a person literally on their deathbed? And and he looks and says, like, all these religions have, he's very generous and charitable towards them. He's like, Buddhists have great things to say about this. Uh, Muslims have great things to say about this. But each time he would come down to, but it has nothing. It just doesn't have anything. He wasn't even like angry about it. He was just kind of stating it. It has nothing to offer to someone who's lying on the operation table about to take their last breath. What is the one message that would bring rest to people who have no more time left to get uh, to a certain place? It's the message of what this passage says, that those who have believed, those who have believed have entered his rest. 
Every other religion has plenty to say about life, plenty to make our lives better, uh, but only Christianity has something to offer in the last moments before our death. Only Christ crucified offers rest to a dying person who has run out of room to work harder. Notice how the gospel connects to each of these things. The need for remembrance. On the cross, Jesus was asked, asked by the thief, remember me when you walk into your kingdom. And what did Jesus say? Today you will be with me. He had no room to get things better. He had no room to make amends. He had no ability. It was, it was, it was on his last moment. Uh, there was a need for meaning that people had. And Jesus on the cross declared, it is finished. It is finished. Everything that needed to happen for you to die and rest. And for you to rest in the fact that you are held in the arms of the God who loves you has been done on the cross. And the need for forgiveness, Jesus Dying on the cross, surrounded by people who at one point had loved him and worshipped him, and then it turned on him, said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The cross has a way of removing us and our efforts from the equation. At the cross, we find that it's not that we're needed. It's not that we bring a lot to the table. It's not that we are in control. In fact, we find the opposite, that we are not in control, that God is in control. This is what the Pharisees couldn't stand about Jesus because he proclaimed grace in the sense of all of your efforts, all of your good deeds, all of your works don't mean anything when it comes to a righteous and holy God. So, but as this passage says, today, if you hear God's voice, you may hear that the cross is something very profound to say to you. Something that deep down we want to know more than anything. And something that we work and strive to achieve, but nothing we do is ever enough. Something that is given to us freely. Something that the exhausted parts of our lives are literally dying to hear. We hear the voice of God whispering, I love you. I forgive you. And it really is finished. The truth is that while we run ourselves ragged trying to prove that we're good enough, the cross says we'll never be good enough. We'll never be needed and we'll never achieve a sense of I'm okay. But we can know deep down in our souls, each one of us in the midst of our exhaustion, in the midst of our tiredness and weariness and weakness, we can know that you are loved and that you will always be loved. And then maybe you and I can get rest. Jesus said, come to me if you're weary and I will give you rest for your souls. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you uh, would apply that to our hearts, that you would comfort us in the places where we're weary, in the places where we're tired. God, in the places where we're feeling like giving up, that you would remind us uh, that you could not love us more than you do because of the death and resurrection of your son, that you would remind us that all is forgiven. And all that needed to be done has been finished. In your name I pray. Amen.